Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I'll remind you that we're studying simultaneously through the book of James and the longest chapter in Psalm in the Bible. And so every time we come to the end of a section in James, my plan is to spend a week or two going through the next strophe of Psalm 119. Not only is Psalm 119 the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's clearly internally divided up into eight verse strophes or chunks. And so we want to go through them and not rush through them. And yet I also thought that doing 22, 24 weeks in a row through Psalm 119 might get um, challenging in its own respect. And so we are we picking up periodically. The, the psalm is arranged as a, an extended acrostic. If it was in English, it would be something like the first eight verses starting with the letter A, the next eight verses starting with the letter B, um, except we're doing the Hebrew alphabet, so this morning's chunk is the heth, or he, stanza. I'd like to begin by reading these eight verses, having a word of prayer, and then we can dive in. Psalm 119, 57 through 64. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I'm a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. I've titled this morning's message, When the Lord is Your Portion. I truly think that opening declaration in verse 57 sets the tone and the theme of this strophe. In fact, the notion of the Lord, when you see Lord in all caps, that's the English translator's way of communicating the divine name, what we call Yahweh, God's covenant name, his personal name for his people. So Yahweh, as the psalmist portion, is the first declaration, and then look what it ends with, the earth, verse 64, O Lord, is full of your Steadfast love, your loyal love, your covenant love, your saving love. And so I I really think these themes sandwich the chunk. And you'll notice that in the rest of it is dominated by the psalmist's response. Now there is an entreaty in verse 58 that the Lord would be gracious to him. But then in verse 59, when I think, I turn my feet. Verse 60, I hasten to keep Verse 61, I do not forget. Verse 62, I rise to praise you. Verse 63, I am a companion. And so I I think a helpful way of thinking through these eight verses is what are the consequences? What does it mean when the Lord is your portion? Or to start by considering it. I think that declaration is significant, very significant. I've suggested to you that Psalm 119 may well have been written by an exile. 
In fact, one of the commentaries I read suggested possibly even Daniel. And we, we can't be dogmatic. We can't insist that it's Daniel or someone else. But someone like Daniel is a really good fit. This person confesses they're a sojourner. They're around pagan princes and rulers. So we can't be certain of the context, but something like the Babylonian captivity seems a very good fit. Very good fit indeed. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll dive in. Lord God... You are our portion as well. I pray that you would help us to see that, to understand that, to live according to that, that we would see how much you are for us and not against us and what great treasure we have in having you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, the reality is we all live for something. All of us treasure something. All of us want something. All of life, in some sense, is pursuing a goal or goals, whether it be promotion at work, happiness in your family, leisure time, public recognition, physical pleasure. We're all living as though there's some desirable end, some desirable goal. We all have, in some respect, an inheritance, a portion, something we want our treasure. Now we've seen in Psalm 119 that the psalmist has very little along those lines. He's poor, his soul clings to the dust. And yet here, he declares he has a portion. The Lord is his portion. And I want to suggest as we read through this, there are four truths that come out when the Lord is truly your treasure, your portion, and what that means. Let's look at the first one. When you are, you are, when the Lord is your portion, you are satisfied with your portion. Verse 57, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Now that phrasing, my portion, may sound odd to your ears. We don't probably speak that way. Usually when you think of portion, you may be thinking of the dinner table. Who gets that slice of pie? Well, that's my portion. That's your portion. Um, and in my household, you need to set that aside with the locusts descend and it just... No, like a pie is one meal. It's gone. It's, it's gone. Um, there is no leftovers. Um, and yet, this is a biblical phrase that actually links back to the division and the allotment of the land. So you remember, God promises Abraham three things. A blessing, a seed, and land. And the Exodus is about freeing God's people, the seed of Abraham, through whom the chosen seed would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, freeing them from slavery, entering into a covenant with God at Sinai, and then giving them a land. And this land was linked with rest and their inheritance. We read in in Joshua 18.10, after the people take possession of the land, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua apportioned the land to the people to each his portion. So that's, that's the notion, the language. The Lord is my portion. This links back to the land allotment. And this is a big deal, because the land was tied to the tribe and to the family, and it could never ultimately leave that family. You could sell your land, but only really, in a sense, lease it until the year Jubilee. So God gives the people chunks of land, and they're forever tied to the family. This is is a big deal. It's important. This is your inheritance. This is your homestead. This is what you were longing for in the wilderness for 30 years. And yet, to one tribe, God gave no land. 
I, mean, I want you to imagine lands being given on acres at a time. I mean, think of the price of land these days. That the leader is just giving out portions of land. And the tribe of Levi shows particular loyalty to God. Do you remember the incident with the golden calf? They prized loyalty with God over loyalty to their own kinsmen, and they went from one end of the camp to the other with their sword. And because of the people's wickedness and idolatry, they struck down who was ever in their path, be it their brother, their mother, their father, their son, whoever, their countrymen. And God gave them the priesthood on that day because of their loyalty. Well, listen to what Numbers 18.20 says. The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. You may think that's bad news. The tribe of Levi, Aaron's the head of the tribe of Levi, no land. We're going to take possession of land, but Aaron, you and your descendants, no land. None. You'd think that's bad news. And he says, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. And aside from certain cities and towns that were given to the Levites, they have no land. Everyone else gets land. They get a double portion of the Lord. And it's supposed to be understood to be a great honor. So your first blank here is, recognize his commitment to you. This was first promised to the Levites. The Lord is my portion. That notion is first seen in the Levites. Everyone else gets a parcel of land. The Levites, they get the Lord. They get a double portion of the Lord. And this is, this is huge. Because even as God was giving temporal blessings to his people, he makes a point that those temporal blessings are not the ultimate and real blessing. In fact, turn, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 90. Psalm 90, the only psalm Moses wrote in the, in the Psalter. There's a couple of psalms Moses wrote in, in the Pentateuch. The only song of Moses to make the hymnal of Israel is Psalm 90. You can think of Moses penning this on the way to the promised land, and it's remarkable how it starts. The whole journey is a journey for a homeland, a journey for rest. And you don't have to be nomadic and pick up the tents and move and how does he begin Psalm 90? A prayer of Moses, the man of God, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses is reminding the people of Israel on their way to take possession of a piece of land. Don't forget, ultimately God is your dwelling place. God is your homeland. The tribe of Levi is singled out with the honor. You don't get any of the goodies temporally. You get the Lord God. And God is highlighting to them. Because the Lord knows that there are seasons of excess in our life and seasons of leanness. This psalm is written in a season of leanness. There, there are seasons in life when you don't have the goodies of life. You don't have a tract of land. You don't have your health when you don't have your loved ones, when you don't have your homeland, and the question then is, do you have something that can satisfy you? Do you have something good, or does your faith collapse? The Levites are singled out to model this. This gets repeated again in Deuteronomy 10.9, Therefore Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. So here the psalmist 
in his destitution, in his lack, recognizes the Lord is his portion. And it clearly, by implication, satisfies him. He's content with that. So first promise to the Levites, blank number two here, God really, and this is the, the real point, is your one true possession, your one sure possession. We know how quickly health, prosperity, livelihood, homes, family can disappear, how frail these things are. And the hope and the trust that we put in them is false. The next breath of my family is not promised to me or to them. God is my portion, and that is my one true possession. And this is important to sink in, because when you are stripped of the things you value, when you're stripped of the things of this world, then we find out how much faith and trust we have in God, how satisfied we are with him, or are we using him to get the stuff? A little later in James... We'll see that. You ask and you do not have. Why? You want to spend it on your pleasures. You want to come to God pretending to worship Him when really what you worship is the stuff, the job, the home, the family, the kids. And yet the Scripture insists the greatest blessing God can give you is Himself. And the greatest gift God can do beyond that is to help you to realize that. And John Piper makes this point, piggybacking off his Jonathan Edwards, but think about this. If God were to give you every good thing in this world, but ultimately withhold from you the best thing, does he not hate you? If God were to give you every good thing in this world and yet withhold the greatest thing, how could he love you? No, God gives us the greatest thing. He gives us himself, and then he takes pains and measures for us to appreciate and understand the gift he's given us. This psalmist in his destitution, in his suffering, has come to realize he has an inheritance. He has a possession. And it's satisfying. I can say it's satisfying because we see his response gladly, freely. I promise to keep your words. The implication being, given my inheritance, of course. He's he's satisfied with God and only God. If God gives you more beyond that, thank him, bless him, but don't begin to worship the things. Understand, you you get God. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get God. You get to know him and be known by him because, your third point here, amazingly, not only does the Bible speak of the Lord as our inheritance and our portion, but amazingly, we are the Lord's portion and inheritance as well. This is first spoken of Israel in Deuteronomy 32.9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. In Psalm 135.4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. But this is one of the continuities that goes across the division of the Old Covenant and the New in Israel and the church. For in the New Covenant we read, 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So your one true, enduring, lasting possession is the Lord God. And you are his inheritance and precious possession. 
Or as the Song of Songs says, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. There's this mutuality of delight. Oh, it's different, no doubt. But the Lord is our one true possession. We learned that we are his prized possession as well, his chosen people. And that, if we can understand that, should satisfy us and, and affect the way we live. And oftentimes we present the gospel as though secondary ends of the gospel were the primary ends. Will it be wonderful to live and never grow old and die? It will. Will it be wonderful to see loved ones who have died and gone on? Yes, it will. Will it be wonderful to exist without disease or death? Of course it will. And we can present the gospel sometimes as so that's the real value. You cannot go to hell and you can see your loved ones. You cannot go to hell and you can live forever and do what you want and eat what you want. And the, 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 that, that's, that's nice. And that's true. The good news of the gospel is you get God. You can have peace and fellowship with God starting now and enduring forever. God is the gospel. You get God. He's your portion. He's your inheritance. And that truth is meant to sustain us through thick and thin, through blessing and poverty. So if God is so committed to us, he's given himself to us, if he is our inheritance, the proper response point be then is to commit yourself to him, which is what the psalmist here does. I promise to keep your word. So he declares this truth. We're going to see he's persecuted. People are trying to trap him. He's discouraged. He's beaten down. The Lord is his portion, and his response is, I commit myself to the one who has committed himself to me. I will keep your words. So the first point, when God is your portion, when the Lord is your portion, you are satisfied with your portion. If this truth doesn't satisfy and delight you, spend more time thinking, praying, going deeper, because the Lord is truly satisfying. The gospel is described as a man finding a treasure in a field, and in his joy he sells all that he has to gain possession of that field. Christ is that treasure. God is that treasure. And with that treasure, you can take my belongings. You can't take my one true lasting inheritance and portion. Everything else is transitory. James will say a little later, your life is a vapor, it's a mist, it's here for a little time. Oh, and there are great things in that vapor and that mist. And enjoy them, rejoice in them. God's made them to be delighted in, but he's not made them as the final end or value. But if we live a life that only sees those things as the final end and value when they're taken from us, then we crumble. So the first truth, when the Lord is your portion and your inheritance you're satisfied with your portion. You commit yourself to him who has committed himself to you. Second, you pray faithful prayers. You pray faithful prayers. Verses 58 to 60. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Two, two main points here. First, earnestly pray for God to faithfully fulfill his promises. I entreat your favor. It's a strong word. 
for literally like caressing the face. You can think of a child. My, my, one of my daughters will do this sometimes. She'll put her hand on my face and say, Daddy. It's intimate. It's, it's, it's appealing. What's translated here is, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Earnestly pray for God to be faithful to his promises. If, if God is all you have and he's your portion, then whatever salvation and help and things you need then must be found in that portion, in the Lord and not anywhere else. This means then that to seek his favor and grace singularly, singularly, you're not looking in five places, you're looking in one place. It's the same word translated in Exodus 32.11 when Moses cries out, the people have sinned with a golden calf. Moses implored, there's the word implored, entreat here, the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? You're seeking his favor singularly. This is all you have. He is all you have. He is enough, but he's all you have. Now the temptation for us is this world has plenty of would-be salvations and saviors to offer us. I mean, what do we call monies in the bank but securities? There's nothing wrong with having those things, but good grief, they can fail you. You know that, right? They will not ultimately deliver you. Or maybe it's your health and medicine and the good doctor that will protect you. Or a vaccine. Or any number of other things that in and of themselves, nothing wrong with them. Don't don't hear me say that these are wrong things. What I'm saying is putting your trust and hope in them, they're false saviors. Be prudent, be wise. But seek from the Lord the grace you need. Entreat his favor singularly and seek his favor and grace earnestly. Notice the intensity. So there's a singular focus. He's not calling on five different saviors for help. He's calling on the Lord God, and he's doing it earnestly, zealously. He's aware of his need. He, he has as his inheritance the covenant promise-keeping God. That's implicit in the name of the Lord. And now he's calling on the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God to keep his promises. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. That's what you and I need. And that's how we ought to pray, boldly, zealously, emphatically. But also, in your prayers for God's faithfulness, be yourself faithful. This gets back to that fundamental notion of entrusting yourself to him who has entrusted himself to you. You're calling on God to keep his word. You're calling on God to do what he said. You also need to come in an attitude of being willing to be his child, being willing to be his subject. If he is your king, you are his subject. If he's your father, you are his child. You're coming in the right relationship. So the rest of this chunk focuses on his responsibility. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. In your prayer for God's faithfulness, Be yourself faithful. Point number one here, consider your own ways in light of God's word. So he's coming to God, he's asking for grace, but in the very act of coming to God, God's word, his commandments, his truth is revealing to him. He's 
comparing how he's walking with what God's word says. God's testimonies, in other words, reveal to him where his steps have gone off. You know, like a mirror. You look in, you see your natural face. And what the psalmist does here is he makes the correction. He doesn't go away and forget. So he's praying for God's grace. We're going to see what for in just a few minutes is his suffering, his persecution, his adversaries. And he's, with all of his heart, crying out for God to give him what he needs. With all of his heart, crying out, God, keep your word, grace me, be favorable to me. And yet he himself is striving to be faithful as well. And as God's testimonies reveal where his steps are off, he directs them. He considers his own way. Consider your own ways in light of God's word. Point number two, be quick to apply and obey what you see. Notice the zeal, the speed. Verse 60, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Keep your finger here and turn to 2 Corinthians 7. This is, this is a bread and butter passage for me. And I, and I suggest it may be for you. It's so often difficult for us to measure our response. We feel conviction. We feel guilt. We decide we're going to do something. And how do we know if we're serious? How do we know what repentance looks like? Is it just a feeling? This is the one passage I know of that gives some really clear observable, measurable um, distinctions of true repentance. The context in 2 Corinthians, the Corinthians have, have uh, turned on Paul to some degree. Paul showed up and they, somebody rose up and withstood him to his face, and, and Paul left brokenhearted, and he, and he wrote them a hard letter. He wrote him a sharp letter, and he didn't enjoy doing that. And then he sent Titus with the letter to the, the Corinthians, and then he's waiting. We'll read about this in a second. Waiting. Really, just tense, concerned how they're going to take it. And he hears from Titus how they repented. And, he, and this is him writing about that, okay? So let's pick it up. Um, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 7, 5. Even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. I was anxious for you, Paul says, and God comforted me by Titus returning. So, so Titus goes with the letter, and then Titus comes back to tell Paul what happened. Verse 7. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So your comforting treatment of Titus rolls over to me, Paul says, and comforted me. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Which is a way of saying, I don't take pleasure in writing harsh letters, but if, if my letter of strong rebuke brought you to repentance, I don't regret it. And I don't actually enjoy saying hard things, but I don't regret saying hard things, because sometimes saying hard things is the only way people repent. That's what he's saying. I, I did regret it. For I, though I did, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. 
As it is, I rejoice, not because you are grieved, but because you are grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief for us, so that you suffered no loss through it. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This is one of the reasons this passage is so paradigmatic for me. You feel bad over what you've done, okay? Inconclusive. There's a worldly grief that leads to death. There's a godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation. It's a good start, but it's in and of itself unclear. Plenty of unbelievers are sad that their actions have lost them, their families, their jobs, their respect. There's a worldly sorrow. Judas is a good example. He goes on to describe, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment at every point. You have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Get that. The Corinthians' response to Paul's rebuke was so clear that Paul, a continental way, through the verbal report of Titus, can say, I'm convinced you have demonstrated your repentance means it's not simply a matter of the heart. It's not simply a matter of feelings. But Paul has heard testimony of their zeal, of their eagerness, of their indignation, of their fear, of their longing. And he can say, I'm convinced you've proven it. You've demonstrated. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So getting back to Psalm 119, he compares his walk with God's testimonies, and that first fruit of repentance is earnestness, front burner. It's exactly what we see here. I hasten and do not delay. When God shows you something, this is just piggybacking off James, when the mirror of the word is held up to you and you see your natural face and you see where your steps have gone astray, you see where there is contamination on you, you either are going to go away and forget and flatter yourself and deceive yourself, or you're going to do something. And genuine repentance, genuine faith is quick to act. It's, it's speedy. Be quick to apply and obey what you see. Because, remember, the guy who goes away immediately forgets. The forgetting is pretty quick as well. So when the Lord shows you something in his word, when his spirit applies his word, and you know there's some change that needs to be made. You, you need to act on it quickly, like this, with zeal, with earnestness. And when God is your portion, that's how we respond. So he prays that God would be gracious to him, but he is also faithful himself, or striving to be. I mean, the very fact that he has to turn his feet indicates there is failure. But when he sees it, he's quick to make changes. Point number three, when the Lord is your portion, you remain loyal to God in your suffering. You remain loyal to God in your suffering. Verses 61 and 62. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. So here, and we've already been introduced in Psalm 119 to adversaries, princes, kings, enemies. Here it's just the wicked, and they have cords. They're trying to trap and hunt him. Not entirely sure what that means in his context, but people are out to get him. They're his enemies. 
And he's in distress, probably connected with the grace and the help he's asking for. And yet, despite the fact that he has multiple adversaries trying to trap him, it does not deter him from his faithfulness to God. I do not forget your law. Man, if there's a time to lose track of God's law, it might be when 10, 12 people are out to get you. It might be distracting. But no, he does not forget God's law. Um, Point one here, danger, danger. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, and even though there is danger, he remains in firm devotion. I do not forget your law. And I think the logic here, again, and it's played out in other passages in Scripture, is that if God is your portion, these people who are trying to trap you can pose no real threat or harm to you in any significant, real way. Um, turn, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. It's just a, I want to try to show you some examples of this type of thinking fleshed out. Is the significance of, of really understanding God is your best possession and gift is, is I think, critical to, to persevere in a hostile world. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 32. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. What what would cause them to open themselves up to a hard struggle, public reproach and affliction, and partnering with those so treated? Look at verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Just joy... Someone comes and steals your stuff because you're a Christian. They're joyful. How do you do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Well, you stole my car. You didn't steal my portion. I have an inheritance. I don't need to worry about this thing you've taken from me. That's how they did it. The Lord is your portion, even though you're being persecuted. You know that your treasure cannot be taken or tarnished or sullied. And it also doesn't remove his delight. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I mean, just, what would you do? You get arrested for being a Christian. You get arrested. For, we got to pray for the underground church in Canada these days. I mean, who knows what the coming years will bring us in regards to persecution? It's feasible. It's possible that for your faith you may be arrested. What, what are you going to do? You're mistreated. You're beaten. Let's take a look in Acts 16 and see what Paul and Silas do. Acts 16. This isn't just hyperbole. At midnight, I rise to praise you. Verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, 
And the magistrates tore their garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison and ordered the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you. It's not hyperbole. This is exactly what Paul and Silas do. God approved, because suddenly there's a great earthquake. And we can leave, you know how the story ends. But this is the thinking that undergirds the actions of people like Paul and Silas. This is the thinking that undergirds the joyful suffering of those the author of Hebrews is writing to. It matters. Theology matters. Thinking matters. What you treasure matters. I'm trying to show you that when the Lord is your portion, when you delight in that, it will affect the way you pray. It will affect the way you suffer. You will delight in God even in and through suffering. And finally, point four, when the Lord is your portion, you long for more of your portion. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O oh Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. What we're seeing here is his, his, he, he wants more closeness with the Lord. He first seeks it in companionship with those who love the Lord. You love the fellowship of the faithful, Right? It's one of the marks of talking to my children. It's one of the marks of the new birth, of being a believer. You love God's other children. In 1 John chapter 4, I'll read to you. Um, 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Don't say you love God if you don't love Christians. And so here, his delight and his commitment to his portion, to his inheritance to the Lord, leads him to delight in and be the companion of all those who share a similar value, of those who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Point B, this also leads you to delight in the signs of God's loyal love all around you. Because let me tell you some good news. When the Lord is your portion... Your portion is bigger than you may otherwise think. And he starts by saying all around him are evidences of God's covenant loyal love. The whole earth is full of your glory. And everywhere he looks, he sees signs of God's faithfulness. I mean, the sun rose today. The stars were let out by him last night. He keeps his word. He's faithful. And he gives us what we need. And all around us, we see evidences of his faithfulness. In fact, 
1 Corinthians 3. If you have the Lord as your portion, you may have far more than you think. Let no one boast in men, 1 Corinthians 3.21, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. How does that work? Because they're God's and God is ours? That's the logic. By, by having your inheritance be the Lord, you, you inherit everything. Absolutely everything. Let me read that list again. All things are yours, whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And so when you have the Lord as your portion, you see evidence of his handiwork all around you because ultimately we, we will inherit the world. We will judge angels. We will rule with him. Our inheritance is cosmic in size and scope. And he looks around and he recognizes that the earth is full of God's steadfast love, which brings him then to want to know God more in his word. You yearn to know his word more fully. It's the other request. There's only two requests in this psalm. Be gracious to me, I entreat you, and teach me your statutes. That you might know his word more fully. Why? One, that we might know him better. This is the mind of God. This is God's word. This is what his mouth has spoken. And so the more you know your Bible, the more you know the God who wrote it. Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, writes this. Whatever I had gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What do you mean, Paul, gain Christ? Don't you have Christ? Yes, but not as much as I want. I don't know him as well as I'd like to. I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And Paul elsewhere says he does know the Lord Jesus. He's actually seen him visibly in the appearance. So when he says he wants to know, I, I want to know him more. That if by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already attained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I want more of him because he, I am his and he is mine. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's, Paul is hungering to know the Lord Jesus better and he's willing to cast anything aside that might slow him down in that process. One of the primary ways we're going to know God better is in his word. And so he sees the evidences of God's covenant faithfulness all around him, God's loyal love, his chesed, and he says, Lord, Lord, teach me your word. That he first might know him better, and then point two, that you might walk in faithfulness before him. I think the other implied 
response is, if God is so good, if my portion is so great, if his mercies are all around, I want to serve you. I want to be faithful to you. I want to be loyal to you, even as your love is loyal to me. You might walk in faithfulness before him. All this when you are satisfied with the knowledge that God is your portion. And I would just pray that by God's grace, we could wrap our heads around these things. God gives us so many good things. And we can be tempted to think they're promised to us. We can be tempted to think they're ours by right. We can be tempted to think that if we're good, he'll never take them away. Read a little church history. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It is not so. But no one can take your true possession. No one can take your true treasure. And if we can understand that now, we can prepare for lean seasons. It will affect the way we pray. It will affect the way we suffer. It will affect the way we rejoice. I'm going to close in a word of prayer as we transition to a time of communion. Oh, Lord God, you have given yourself to us. You are our treasure, our portion. You are our inheritance. We need nothing else apart from you. We can sing, all I have is Christ and I have everything. Lord, help us to be satisfied with you. Guard us from the love of this world that craves other things. Let us love no thing in this world except for your sake and is coming from your hand. Teach us to depend upon you. Teach us to be satisfied with you even as the things of this world come and go, wax and wane. Help us to live as people whose treasure is somewhere else who are looking for a city whose architect and founder is God and not one built by men. Lord, as we come to this table, as we come to this memorial meal, help us to do with eyes of faith rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of transition, I want to read to you from Romans chapter 8. We often consider, and rightly so, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross for us. But I also want you to consider, there aren't many passages that look to this, but in Romans 8, here we do, the gift of the Father, the implied suffering of the Father in giving his Son to die. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And it's not that there won't be people against you. It's, it's they're inconsequential. They're nothing. They're nobodies. They can't do anything of any real harm. Well, they can kill you, but you're going to live forever. If God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God gave the greater and harder thing, How on earth could you think he'll be stingy with the lesser thing? He gave his son for us. How on earth could he, out of stinginess, withhold things for us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from our inheritance, from our portion? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Applied answer, no. Does that then mean we won't suffer? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the certainty of our portion and our possession. Um, if you have cups nearby, um, Transition, prepare to read. Christians are those who have found in the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection the ultimate and truly satisfying treasure. The veil is removed and we see him as our greatest good, his love, his promises as our greatest value. And we give ourselves to him in faith even as he has given himself to us. If you're a Christian here this morning, I welcome you to join in this meal with us. This is not the thing itself. This, this is not Jesus' physical body, but it is a sign. The Lord has given us two signs in the Christian faith. One of entrance and beginning, baptism, the start of something, a cleansing, a birth, and a meal that shows continuance. We are those who again and again and again feed from, derive strength from, our Lord, our living head. And that's what this meal symbolizes. He gave up his flesh and body for us on the cross. And we continually feed and find nourishment and strength. So if you're not a believer, don't blaspheme the sign. Don't eat and drink judgment on yourself. Paul writes about it this way, saying this, 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. But let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the Lord. So let's take a moment now, examine our hearts, confess any sin that we have not dealt with the Lord. You don't need to come sinlessly, but you need to come sincerely and faithfully. So let's take some time and get right with the Lord if we need to.